This podcast is brought to you by the book, The Memoir Project, a thoroughly non-standardized text for writing in life, published by Grand Central Publishing. Recently updated and reissued in a new edition, it will teach you everything you need to know to write memoir. For more information, see the show notes or purchase wherever books are sold. Welcome to QWERTY. I'm Marion Roach-Smith. Each episode, I talk to writers from all genres to discover what makes a good read. And along the way, we discuss their writing process, discover their tips, and talk about what matters most to writers. So step away from the computer or typewriter for a bit and join us. My guest today is Anne Kramer, and she is the writer we all want to speak with right now. The author of one book on navigating emotion in the new workplace, another on the risk-reward ratio of taking intelligent leaps in your professional life, and, wait for it, another book on going gray. This author profile makes her the single person you want to slide into a diner booth with right now and talk the day away. Except, of course, we're amid the COVID shut-in, and we can't do that right now. But what we can do is this, and welcome her to QWERTY. Hi, Anne. Hi, Marion. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Um, I have established routines <laughs> that allow me to get through the day <laughs> with, with some modicum of sanity. Good. Well, you've got to admit that your books rather make you the authority of all things we're dealing with right now, our workspaces, our risk tolerance, and our hair. So let's set this up a bit, though, because in one interview I read with you, you're referred to as a serial entrepreneur, which is true. Mm -hmm. In the mm -hmm. late 70s and early 80s, you were part of the team that distributed and co-produced Sesame Street around the world. You're part of the team that launched the single greatest magazine ever, Spy Magazine, <laughs> arguably the most influential magazine of the 1980s. And in the 90s, you were executive vice president and worldwide creative director for Nickelodeon and Nick at Night. You became a columnist for the magazine Fast Company and for Martha Stewart Living. And then come the books, all of which reference your own career in some way, as well as use the skills you learned in like reading data, performing interviews, sampling the public's opinions and trends. So chicken and the egg question to open with. Were you taking notes all along the way in your professional career with an eye toward writing books? Or like did something in your life just say, ah, oh, next I want to publish? There, there were a couple of strands in this. I certainly was not taking any notes, although the kind of germ of all of the books would be from a sort of pivotal emotional moment of kind of stress in my life. And so, you know, those kinds of memories are laid down uh, with greater affect in your minds. And so it was pretty easy for me to ac access them when I decided to try and write about them. But uh, in my life, I never thought I was going to be a writer. Um, I live with a writer, uh, and um, the idea that I could kind of, you know, exist in that same sphere was somewhat terrifying to me. But I also began to become extremely disillusioned with corporate America, and I realized at a certain point the only person I could work for anymore in my life was me. So <laughs> I, had, I had no choice. I had no choice except to like figure out, well, okay, maybe I can do this writing thing. Um, so it, it was a leap of faith. Yeah, I get that. I had, that happened to me just a lot earlier. The personal politics of working at the New York Times got to me in my twenties, and I was 
just sort of jettisoned right out of ever wanting to work for anybody else ever again. So I get that. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense. And we should say that you live with the writer Kurt Anderson, who's a wonderful novelist, a fantastic historian, and the co- the host of Studio 360, which we've just just kissed goodbye. But I love that was my favorite uh, radio show uh, ever, too. So yep. cool. Yep. But yeah, that would be a little intimidating, I guess. But your books are so different. Yes. And I, yeah, but I can see that if you hear the screaming from behind the closed door on a regular basis, maybe <laughs> you don't want to be a writer. No, what was really interesting about it, and, and it, there is a linkage here. So when um, we did Spy Magazine in the 80s, he was on the editorial side and I was on the business side. And mm-hmm. it was one of those things that could have been the greatest mistake of our lives and, you know, led to divorce. But in fact, it was a just magnificent collaborative relationship. And so we'd already had a kind of very good uh, modus operandi when it came to working together. And I had the benefit as a as an executive of watching his sort of uh, writing process and writing ethic. And so when I did mm. make the decision to try and um, start writing, I already had a kind of template and role model to um, mirror myself on. So I wasn't just making it up out of whole cloth and having no idea. And it, a lot of it was the adage that we all know, which is that you just have to sit down and do it. <laughs> but right. I had a person right. in my household who did that every morning. So it was like, OK, I guess I'm going to go up and do that, too, you know. So yeah. uh, that was helpful. Yeah, I'm a huge believer in, in what I refer to as the S&M of writing, the hard chair, and you sit in it until you finish the damn thing. So it's not, um, you know, all angels' feathers and getting in touch with your right or left side of your brain for me. In fact, none of that is true. It's the it's the work of it. And I think yeah. having someone in the house, I my husband's a newspaper editor, and no matter what, that newspaper comes out every day. So I get that. We get that that role model thing mm-hmm. that's very, very important. Well, when you published your first book, which is called Going Gray, What I Learned About Beauty, Sex, Work, Motherhood, Authenticity, and Everything Else That Matters, which I just (laughs) love that last phrase, um, apparently you got a glimpse of yourself in a picture and it began a line of thought. How, How did that book roll out from getting a glimpse of yourself? Yeah. So my very first job out of college was working in a bank. And at that moment, I started dyeing my hair a kind of aubergine color or a kind of bittersweet color. And it was never quite clear, Mm -hmm. but I wanted to make it very clear to the banking management that I was an artist. (laughs) So my, 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 I wasn't one of them, you know, I was, some drastic mistake had happened and I'd landed in this banking environment, but I really wasn't one of them. I was an artist. And so my hair color was Mm -hmm. this sort of crude tool I began to employ to establish identity. And, you know, it went through multiple shades of, you know, I was every color in the rainbow, kind of a blonde. And then, you know, when I turned 40, I dyed my hair jet black, bemoaning the fact that I was never going to be a rock star. And, you know, when Mm. I walked in the door that night, my kids who were four and six burst into tears because like mommy's evil (laughs) twin had just come into the house, you know, and it was a disaster. So there had been a long (laughs) practice of hair color associated with you know, thoughts about identity and aging on some level. And I was on a trip with um, two friends of mine, both of whom had gray hair, and my then daughter, uh, who was 16, who had blonde hair. And one of my friends sent a picture from there. And at that point in time, I dyed my hair this sort of helmet 
mahogany color. And I just looked at that photograph and I thought, I looked dreadful. It was like I was in the middle of these two kind of radiant hair colored people, blonde daughter and, you know, shiny gray haired friend. And I was like a black, you know, vortex sucking all the light and energy (laughs) out of the photograph. And I thought, huh, uh, maybe I should see what my actually natural hair color is. And because I'm a coward, I went to a friend who was an editor at Moore Magazine at the time, and I said, would you be interested in me trying to write about this? And she said, yes. And that piece um, produced more reader response mail for them than any piece they had published in their then entire 10-year history. And I thought, okay, this is a nerve. Let's see, you know, what this means. And that led me on a journey because I really like who cares about hearing about how somebody let their hair go gray. That's like watching paint dry, in my opinion. But what I realized in right. my process of letting my hair go gray is that it really touches on everything that's central to, you know, society, to our norms, to our values, to our self-identity, to everything from aging to professional mm-hmm. viability to sexual attractiveness. And so the book I dove in and created all of my own kind of social science experiments because you're right when you said in the introduction that I like to marry data with um, sort of personal experience because I really wanted to know what women around the world, you know, around the country were thinking and feeling about things. So I, I, you know, did large national surveys and I did experiments on Match.com and I went back to Headhunters and I just tried to, you know, roll up to 100,000 feet, the large kind of forest picture, and then come down to my own individual trees perspective throughout the book. Oh, it's wonderful. So you really approach it from a cultural studies angle. And I found that fascinating, the data, the polling, ultimately setting up a data site, a dating site, sorry, not a data, but a dating site, a brilliant book launch differentiator. I mean, I've been through four book launches (laughs) myself, but this one takes the proverbial uh, wedding cake because it's this, it's a, it's a total differentiator. So what was that about? and, And just give the listeners a bit of a sense of that. All my friends, when I was letting my hair grow out, were like, uh, well, you're lucky. You're married. If you had to date, you know, you couldn't do that. Um, and mm-hmm. so I thought, well, really, is that true? Because I know several women with gray hair who were single and going out, uh, you know, socially and having a fine time. And so the way I thought I could quantify it was to go on Match.com with my hair, the mahogany color that I dyed it. And, you know, um, with all the information the same, although I did say that on the profile that I was divorced, uh, even though the entire family was part of the, uh, you know, experiment. (laughs) And then six six months later, I went on with the exact same information, um, except with my profile photograph with my hair gray. Mm -hmm. In New York, Chicago and Los Angeles, three times as many men were interested in going out with me with my gray hair as they were with my dyed hair. And I had Mm. done the experiment because I thought I was going to validate everybody's conventional wisdom about this, that no, of course, they're right, you have to dye your hair. And what I came away with was, no, that's not the case. And I was on Good Morning America promoting the book, and they repeated the experiment with lots of women around the country, and they all had the same result too. It's fabulous. What became clear was, in 1950... You know, 7% of women in America dyed their hair. By the time I conducted the research in the, you know, 2008, fundamentally it was like 95% of women nationwide in every economic 
sphere that you could think of. Every demographic dyed their hair. So what had happened in the interim from there was marketing. And in the early days, when Clarell introduced living color in the 60s and women could dye their hair at home, we were going into the workforce for the first time in significant numbers. And I think a lot of women associated dyeing their hair with empowerment and sort of connected it Mm -hmm. with women's liberation. The marketing shifted that very quickly to if you, you know, all the ads in the 60s and 70s were some, you know, drab housewife with quote-unquote mousy hair, as they then dubbed everybody's natural (laughs) hair color, was in the kitchen with her, you know, into her wrist with dirty dishes. And then she dyes her hair blonde, and the next thing you know, she's on the beach in Bermuda with her husband. She is. And so that's... Yeah. You know, that's that's what we all became, we believed, <laughs> right. cluelessly and blindly. Right. So you've got this remarkable evolution from this idea, this photo that you see with yourself, to the data gathering, the reporting, the interviewing, and the book launch, which I just love. But we didn't talk a lot about the writing yet. So I, I assume you learned a great deal about yourself as you wrote. And so yeah. what advice can you give to writers about the agility we need to have as we write and learn about ourselves? Yeah. Well, I'm also going to sort of add another note with this, that because of my corporate and business background, I always approach everything almost in a weird way as a competitive analysis. So I try to look at the overall marketplace of what exists in the area that I'm trying to write about. And then I see if there are any gaps in the market that I think that I am uniquely qualified on some level to fill. And that is actually where these sort of psychographic social test that I created led me to because none of the books in the sort of aging space or thing ever had any data like this that was tied to both kind Mm -hmm. of a macro level and a personal level. I also read all the extant books around aging and, you know, health and beauty and all those things before I ever put pen to paper. And those ideas Mm -hmm. kind of gestate on some level. So as you're doing your reading and your research, you're thinking of things that you can, that lead you in different directions. You know, the survey with Match.com led to a completely different sort of um, thought process and writing process for me. The books about aging led me to, you know, Betty Friedan's extraordinary book, The Fountain of Age. Um, You know, in it, she was able to point out that the people who are most comfortable in their biological skin actually live longer. So I, in the writing of this, I began to think about, at the time I did it, I was in my late 40s. I'm now 64, so I've, you know, internalized a lot of this. But at the time, I was like, what do I think about aging? My mother had died very young, uh, so I didn't, you know, have her as a role model. And I'm the mother of two daughters. And so it was, a, what kind of a woman do I want to represent for them? What kind of a sense right. of womanhood, you know? So it was all that stuff. It was like, who am I? Who do I want to be? What kind of message do I want to send? What are my values? And that does come out mm-hmm. in the writing. It absolutely does. So I'm expecting you to give me a great deal of help here in this. Here's your ultimate social test. I'm a redhead. And I yeah. feel like I'm losing my identity as I can't get my hair done, as we used to say in, 19, in the 1950s, I guess. But I can't, I don't remember how many years I've been dyeing my hair to keep my hair the exact shade it was when I was 16. And so yeah. I'm right on top, right? Redheads yes. are the worst at going gray, according 100%. to you. 100%. Why? Yes. Why are we so bad at this, Anne? 
<laughs> well, because you're so few of you. And so because it, yeah. it, it, the, the red hair becomes just almost synonymous with who you are, mm-hmm. all I can offer to you in terms of this it, it, moment of thinking about it is, um, to me, having my natural hair color now was like gaining a superpower. I genuinely feel oh. like... Power courses through me from having this and not having to worry about my roots or who I am. This is who I am right now. So it's about being fully present. One bizarre thing I discovered when I quit dyeing my hair is that so much of my time when I did dye it was, are people looking at my roots? It was all self-reflection of how people would be judging me on my the state of my hair and roots. With that eliminated, I no longer even think about what I look like. It's always about looking at the other person and hearing them and thinking about them. It, it frees up bandwidth in your brain. It opens your horizons. It eliminates all the kind of negative self-criticism that we have kind of running through our feedback loops in our mind. And it is, I had this fantasy the other day of, imagine if all the women who are now isolated, sheltering in place, as we say, who Mm -hmm. cannot dye their hair were to say, okay, we're not going to do it. And we all walked out Mm -hmm. of our houses you know, two months from now with our actual natural hair color, the message that that Mm -hmm. would send to the planet of, you know, hear us roar. We are not going to be shackled by your narrow bandwidth of of beauty standards. We are all Mm. beautiful and strong people. So get out of our way. Oh, I'm smiling from earring to earring right now. Big lipsticky smile. So there you go. Here I am wearing lipstick for a, a, a podcast, of course. That's me. <laughs> Such a redhead thing to do. <laughs> so that's great. And that, and that personal, that whole idea of navigating our emotions is also so much behind your 2011 book, which is called It's Always Personal, Navigating Emotion in the New Workplace, which opens with this sort of chest tightening tale of this wildly happy moment with your team at Nickelodeon and this huge success and the joy of bonding that is broken in an instant by a phone call. Can you tell us this story again, please? Yeah. I mean, so uh, Nickelodeon was one of the great jobs of my life. I mean, my boss at the time, this woman, Jerry Laybourne, without a doubt, was the best mentor I ever had. We had a great team. We were doing cool stuff for kids and uh, I was running at the time the Consumer Products Group, and we'd done a big deal with Sony Music, and the Wall Street Journal had covered it, and the trades had covered it, and it was the largest audio and video deal of its of its kind at the time. And we're celebrating in Sumner Redstone, who still, I think, shockingly, even chirogenically, practically frozen in Los Angeles as he is at this point, uh, was then and is still the chairman of Viacom, and... Um, I thought he was calling. My assistant said Sumner's on line one, and I thought he was calling to congratulate me. And instead, he was calling to berate me for the fact that the announcement of this deal had not moved the Viacom share price. And so I went Mm. from euphoria to abject misery in 10 seconds, basically. And then this, you know, Mm -hmm. horrible human being slams the phone down on me. And, you know, his anger coming at me over the phone wire instantly triggered in in me my you know 
fight or flight response. He was threatening me. He was attacking mm-hmm. me. So mm-hmm. all the hormones were mm-hmm. going in my body. I, you know, I now know this after all my research, but I was flooded with something. And when he slammed the phone down, the only thing my body could do to kind of dissipate that sense was to burst into tears. And mm-hmm. I was part of the generation of women who'd gone to work, which is whatever you do, do not let them see you cry. You will never Absolutely. be senior management material. And so mm-hmm. I was ashamed of crying, but really what I was was angry. Like, mm-hmm. how dare you, you son of a gun, to call me up like that and say this when, the, you know, I, I was working within a division, within a division, within a division, within a division of a $6 billion company. So why, you know, a $20 million deal would move the share price is absurd. But this man felt mm-hmm. entitled to call me and let off his anger in my direction and I had no place, you know, I couldn't say to him what I wanted to say because I thought I would have been fired. And so I just, all that whirled around in me and I cried. And I went, you know, I told the team to go home. I went home and, you know, began to chew that over. And it was it was the isotope that planted the seed that mm-hmm. caused me to eventually to quit the job two years later. It took me a while to get there, but that was the moment of like, I don't want to work in a place like this. And sure. one day I'm not. But you went back and grabbed it as the opener of the book, which, first of all, is incredibly generous. I mean, that is exactly (laughs) what it requires to write that book, that we know that you have a reliability as a narrator, that we absolutely know that you know what this kind of rage and what this kind of shame and what this kind of anger engenders. And did you go back and call people and interview people who are in that room, or did you just recreate it? Just help us through as writers recreating a scene like that. Yeah, I actually uh, went back and called everybody, and I cribbed that idea from the marvelous David Carr, who was a close friend of uh, mine and ours, who'd written an Mm -hmm. incredible memoir called Night of the Gun. And he was a a journalist who'd worked for a company that my husband had done called Inside.com, and then he went to the New York Times, and he had struggled profoundly with addiction and drugs. And so he went back and um, interviewed all the people in his life during his dark ages. And I thought that was a really interesting idea because one of my things is if we're told we're all losers if we cry at work, I wonder if other people actually think that of us. So I went back mm-hmm. and I interviewed everybody who'd been in the room. I tried to interview Sumner, but of course, you know, his press flex wouldn't <laughs> let me through to him. But oh, I, I so wanted to have him like say, what? Who are you? I don't even remember you. Um, Mm. but one person in this group of, you know, eight or nine vaguely remembered, oh yeah, something happened. Nobody else (gasps) did. And so what, what I learned in the research, again, I had to kind of learn everything about sort of neuroscience and memory and how we process and deal with emotions and retain them and, you know, lay them in deeper. And what I realized is that most people, because it was the end of the day, they left work, they went on with their life, and they completely forgot about it. It had nothing to do with them, really. And I went home and, you know, proceeded to rehash it with my husband and then just keep thinking about it because it was so unfair and unjust. And so I just, that memory was just stuck in me. And so one one wants to also know, well, so why? So I, again, conducted these two significant national surveys to find out, you know, what people were thinking about emotion at work. And I found out at the time I was doing this, which is during the Great Recession, that 80% of people were miserable in their jobs. That didn't come as a giant surprise. 
at the time, but that, uh, in fact, there was no what I now call tissue sealing, that people at all levels of management reported that they had cried at work, and that, in fact, 88% of people in the workplace view uh, the expression of emotion as a positive attribute, that it signals mm. empathy and compassion and, you know, humanity. No one wants to work for a perfect person or a, you know, robot. We want to connect as human beings. And so this, again, a little bit like the gray hair and the dating thing. There's no foundation for this myth that if we cry on occasion in the workplace, we damage our professional trajectories. Absolutely. It's wonderful. I love the idea of going from this inkling, from these moments, from the picture with looking at the picture with your daughter and your gray haired friend, going from this long held memory, this very smoldering memory that you first decided to check out with everybody else and then learned that nobody else had the same emotional resonance with this thing. And that yet you pursued it as a book because the data is what we needed on that. You're absolutely right. So pitching it to your publisher you started from when? When you had done some of the data research or when you just had the memory of the Sumner Redstone moment or where along the trajectory of knowledge did you pitch it as a book? It was um, just with the notion. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and the same was true with the Gray Book, although because of the Moore magazine piece, they had to kind of document the kind of they had data from that, that like, oh, this is of interest to an audience. Mm -hmm. With the um, emotion book, I just really wrote up a uh, kind of a two-page, um, you know, I had this moment. Uh, I would really like to understand, you know, how the genders do process and deal with emotion differently and why we, you know, all have these sort of preconceived socially conditioned notions about what is required. And my timing on that was also interesting because the science of emotion really only began to have any sort of um, credibility in academia after the year 2000 when, you know, fMRIs came into existence and people could begin to study actually living brains. Yes. And so what the science was demonstrating is that um, you can't even figure out what you want to wear to work or eat for breakfast without having your emotions involved, that emotions are <laughs> central and integral to every single decision you make throughout the course of your day. And so this kind of industrial revolution, you know, 50s madmen, you know, the work is uh, working environment is a place of rationality and data and, you know, uh, economics is specious because all of it <laughs> includes our emotions and that what most gets in the way of people people's uh, professional um, advancement and sort of happiness is all this interpersonal stuff that is always simmering underneath the, you know, uh, level and that people never deal with because we're sort of taught, well, it's not there, but it is. Mm -hmm. Sure it is. And it's so rewarding, having read the book, to know that. Yeah, and then you notch it up again. I at least this is the way I look at your the trajectory of these three books. You notch it up in two fifteen when you published Risk Reward: Why Intelligent Leaps and Daring Choices Are the Best Career Moves You Can Make. Because unless you're willing to take that emotional sleigh ride, there's no way you're going to make intelligent leaps and daring choices unless you're willing to go with your emotions into your experience. There's just no way. And you take us onto this deep dive into professional risk taking. So you know again. I, I love the fact that you tested your emotional metal and then 
really gauged what risk tolerance is in the larger social science sense. So what was yeah. it that you had noticed about risk and reward that assured you there was a book there? Well, a lot of it was um, conditioned on the fact that uh, with the time I was writing that, my children were entering the workforce, and they were they entered the workforce uh, in 2010 and 2012, and so they were coming in on the backs of uh, the Great Recession. We had transitioned because of you know shareholder value with the breaking the contract with our employees, losing. Um, you know, any sort of sense of uh, permanence or loyalty or, you know, 401ks or all the things that are roiling our economy right now were really gaining traction in the late 90s, early aughts. Mm -hmm. And so I was watching my kids and their cohort try to get jobs and seeing how unstable and tenuous and the gig economy was destroying the potential futures, I think, for entire swaths of our society. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when I had, I should backtrack with every one of these books, I, um, because I have a marketing background, I had wanted to create a marketing partnership with the Gray Hair book um, with Dove Pro Age, which was just putting their products into the marketplace at the time. And I was trying to get distribution, actually, for my book in drugstore um, shampoo chain lines mm -hmm. to sort of open up a new channel of distribution. That didn't really come to effect because um, packaged goods companies are really risk averse. Huh. Um, but um, <laughs> I, I got a great relationship with um, J. Walter Thompson when I was doing that. And a woman named Rosemarie Ryan, who was then the head of J. Walter Thompson, put me in touch with her head of research, this terrific man named Mark Truss. And so he really helped me start doing all of my research uh, and with the emotion book, J. Walter Thompson, um, and he was a professional and knew how to structure things and really had, uh, you know, the, these large national cohorts of people who he could, you know, set up the surveys with. So that was a gift that was unique through the generosity of these people. With the emotion book, I wanted to do the same thing with Kleenex, which was one of their clients. Again, failed, but again, this extraordinary professional sort of relationship with the head of research. And same thing with uh, risk reward. And J. Walter Thompson was able to get out of it insight into consumer sort of mindsets and trends that would be of benefit to their clients. So even though we didn't have a relationship that was a sort of direct one-on-one -on -one marketing one, we were able to have, uh, you know, it was beneficial to both sides of the equation. So mm. anyway, that that's a backstep that, you know, you could do your own survey monkey things. I was fortunate to have a partnership by just truly like ringing, you know, doors and trying to see if I could get into agencies. Persistence actually matters a lot, Marion, in all of these things, like picking up the yes. phone a thousand times. If you're doing an interview, they're never going to call you back. Uh, you know, so just you have to be relentless in following up on a variety of things. So with the risk reward book, I wanted to find out, well, what are the tools and the levers that can um, help someone prosper, someone like my kids prosper in this new very uh, tenuous, uncertain, no clear career paths, working environment. And that was the, the, the sort of, my kids were the catalyst for risk reward more than myself. Hmm. 
So last time I checked in with you, you were thinking about writing fiction and you were starting a company with your daughter called Wild and Rare, in which you design and make accessories that highlight the beauty of nature and raise awareness for our planet's biodiversity. I love the company. I love the stuff. Is that what you're doing? Are you also writing? Talk to me a little bit about this entrepreneur woman writing person with gray hair and what she's doing now, please. Yeah, well, you you know, it's like uh, my through line in all this stuff has always been sort of something that I see that isn't happening and working. And the wild and rare business started up because a couple of years ago, a year ago, there was a orca in the kind of um, Pacific Northwest pod mother who had had a baby that died right after it was born. And she went on a thousand mile morning, you know, funereal tour with the baby on her snout showing the baby because it was the first one that had been born in three years. Anyway, I just, I found myself just tears streaming mm. down my face thinking mm-hmm. about this happening. And I had already been working on a, a book about animal intelligences and a young woman who lives in Brooklyn where I where I live who develops a superpower to begin to speak with animals. And so that's the novel I am actually still working on. And it's Mm -hmm. a sort of hybrid fantasy mystery kind of thing. God knows if I can do it. Who knows? But um, the research, like I do with all my books, I spent a massive amount of time trying to learn about animal intelligence and things. Anyway, there was this sort of perfect intersection between my desire to you know, I'm not a scientist. I don't have zillions of dollars to donate, but I wanted to create kind of what I was calling wearable billboards in a way Mm -hmm. um, with my younger daughter, who's a graphic designer. And I had sort of two missions from this. One was to raise awareness and money, but also to only have a joyful experience with her. So Uh. there's no need. we're We're not trying to, you know, meet deadlines and scale and, you know, have distribution channels in every, you know, museum of natural history around the country. This is meant to be something that we do um, when either one of us has kind of the time and bandwidth and that where we share um, an experience of collaboration and joy. And I'm happy to say, I, I believe so far we've really achieved it. And we're working on our kind of fourth quarter products for this year. And um, we've learned a lot in the sort of creation of the ones that we did last year, and it's been a delight. And so I, it's this kind of reinforcing thing, which is everything I do kind of also ends up being mission-driven about wanting to kind of help people raise awareness and change their mindsets about things that we have these sort of preconceived, settled notions about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's part of the work with the eco-consciousness and sort of environmentalism and biodiversity, and that's kind of as I share with your sister, uh, Margaret, who's been helping me try and create the most biodiverse environment that I can in my own little gardens, it's all of a piece. And so Mm -hmm. I spend my time uh, working on both those in two different day parts of my day. Well, thank you for telling us about it. And good luck with all your projects. I'm delighted to have you here. And I'm delighted that your three books will be the the, the three things that I continue to refer to (laughs) during this COVID emergency. That's Ann Kramer, and you can find her books wherever books are sold. I'm Marion Roach-Smith, and you've been listening to QWERTY. QWERTY is produced by Overit Studios in Albany, New York. Reach them at overitstudios.com. Our producer is Adam Claremont. Our assistant is Lorna Bailey. Want more on the art and work of writing? Visit marionroach.com and take a class with me. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to QWERTY and listen to it wherever you go. 